I invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. And our text is chapter 4, verses 38 through 44. Hear the word of God. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds, and came and cut them up and into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat, and while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. And he said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. There was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God, bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? And so he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. We acknowledge before you, O Lord, that you are the author of these words and that you have given them to your church, that church, the ancient church, prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in our flesh, and also to us who have come to know the living Savior, who is now sitting at your right hand. So, O Lord, we do pray that as these words have been given to us, that we might gain some understanding of that which you have for us in them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since uh, World War II, uh, we in the United States have not known a great deal of scarcity we had a touch of it, maybe, in 20, uh, 20, 2020 and 2021. For the first time, uh, some of us went to the store and couldn't get items that we're, we're used to getting. And for some of us, that was a new experience. Yet, it is the case that people throughout the world live with great scarcity. 
Uh, we've seen recently in Maui uh, the fires that have wiped out whole village, whole, whole city, people who have lost their homes and who no doubt are even at this time wondering what the future has for them. And there are people throughout the world who experience various calamities uh, leading to uh, scarcity of resources. Uh, the Bible says that God told the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness that he allowed them to experience that uh, scarcity in order to humble them that they might know what was in their hearts and that he might teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Elisha has uh, been returned now to his southern preaching circuit. He is in Gilgal, which is near Jericho, and um, he is ministering in that region. You remember last time we noted that uh, the other miracles in this chapter took place in the northern region uh, near um, uh, Mount Carmel in the villages that were around there. Now Elijah, Elisha is in Gilgal. And uh, the people that are in his presence are the sons of the prophets. They are mentioned here that uh, they were sitting before the prophet and he was no doubt engaged in uh, teaching them. The people of God and these sons of the prophets were experiencing the scarcity that comes when God in his uh, judgments upon the, his people in the northern kingdom for their idolatry brought upon them uh, both uh, lack of rain and also uh, scarcity and fa famine. And uh, we see that there is a, there's a remnant, there's a, there's a, there's a gathering of, of, of a few within this wider nation of those who uh, do love the Lord, the God of Israel, their covenant God, and who gather to hear the teaching of Elisha. And uh, Elisha is sitting before them, and uh, they are uh, hungry. Uh, Elisha realizes that they need food. And we're told uh, two occasions when this occurred. And the first one is in verses 38 through 41, and the second in 42 through 44. The first, we have the account of uh, the pot that had death in it. And the second, we have the account of a man who brought his first fruits, loaves of bread, to Elisha, uh, and uh, they were not sufficient for the number of people that were there. What I'd like to do tonight is look at this uh, account in Scripture under three headings. The first is to know that people are in need. People are in need. And we see this in verse 38. Elisha came again to Gilgal, where there was a famine in the land. 
Secondly, we want to see God's miraculous provision of food for his people. God's miraculous provision of food for his people. Thirdly, we want to see how these two miracles point to God's provision not only of physical food, but of spiritual food through Jesus, who is the bread of life. God's provision of Jesus, who is the bread of life. And so then, first, let's consider the need that these, uh, these, this gathering of, of the remnant uh, gathered around the prophet for teaching, uh, the need that they themselves experienced. They are in need. Well, let's pause for a minute and uh, go back. When God made the world and he made Adam and Eve, it was not marked by scarcity or need. The world that God created was marked by abundance. And uh, not uh, I think it was this past week in uh, our study of Calvin's Institutes, we came across this passage in uh, Calvin that describes God's provision for them. I thought it would be interesting for us to uh, hear what Calvin has to say about God's fatherly provision for Adam and Eve. He says, If God had put him, that is Adam, in an earth as yet sterile and empty, if he had given him life before light, he would have seemed to provide insufficiently for his welfare. Now, when he disposed the movement of the sun and stars to human uses and filled the earth with waters and air and the air with living things, and he brought forth an abundance of fruits to suffice for foods, in thus assuming responsibility of a foreseeing and diligent father of the family, he shows his wonderful goodness toward us. God, who is the creator, is one who foresees and diligently provides for the family he created. And he shows his wonderful goodness to mankind in filling the earth with such an abundance. Well, that's the way God made the world. But something happened. Adam sinned. And with that sin, he brought death into the world and all our woe. Adam was told after he sinned, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And so we see that Life in a world of sin, life in a world in which there is rebellion against the Creator, is to be a world that experiences the earth, as it were, 
fighting against Adam as he toils. And so it will bring forth from Adam the sweat of his face, and he will eat bread, but it will be with great difficulty, and eventually he will return to the earth from which he was taken. Death is seen for the first time, and so we see that it was the case for Adam. Same was true of Canaan. When God gave Canaan as an inheritance to Israel, it was a land of bounty. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. And God warned Israel that if they did not listen to his voice, he would bring judgments upon them. And so we have these words. God says in Leviticus 26, If you will not listen to me, I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So it was then that Israel would experience that they would labor but not experience profit that they would experience instead an insufficiency and disappointment. In Deuteronomy, we read these words, You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat it. So we see then that not only for Adam, sin brought great difficulty and into Adam's life. We see it as well for Israel. God would bring famine, scarcity, hardship upon Israel to teach them by that adversity that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from God. So these faithful sons of the prophets, as they were gathered before Elisha, were not exempt from the judgments that were falling upon unfaithful Israel. They would experience that as well. We look about us and we see the world in which we live. It is a world, as we noted earlier, in which catastrophes occur in which men go to war and slaughter one another. It is a world in which death in massive doses is handed out by cruel tyrants. It is a world in which famine and lack of food is experienced. And it is a world in which there is great human suffering. What is the reason for that suffering? The reason for the suffering is that man has rebelled against God and sinned against God. And so God allows these hardship as trumpet calls into the world to call men and women to acknowledge him as their God and to find in him their life. And so when uh, these men were sitting before Elisha with this pot, we know that they, what was in that pot was very, very valuable. 
while we uh, find it, 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 it takes very little of our overall income to have food on the table, it takes very little of our overall time allotment to prepare food, for people in Israel at this time who were suffering the results of this famine, it took every waking minute and it took all of the labor that they could muster and all of the resources that they could gather to come up with this pot of stew. And so they were coping with the effects of God's judgment upon Israel and they were living with that. So it is for us as well. God's people are not exempt from suffering. And it is so important for us to know why it is that we live in the world as it is. And to be able to say that the reason that things occur the way they do is because we have turned against the Creator, God. There is a reason for these things. The second thing I'd like for us to know is that God miraculously provides food for his people. In the first miracle, he removes death from a pot. In the second miracle, he multiplies loaves of bread. So in the first miracle, Elisha is sitting with the sons of the prophets, and he's most likely giving them instruction. And he stops and he says to Gehazi, his servant, to set up the large pot and prepare the stew for them. And there's not much. And in order to make that pot go farther, one of the sons of the prophet goes out to the field, and he adds gourds that he found from a wild vine, but he didn't know what they were. And the word for gourd that is used here um, stands for a, a plant called Citrullus colcinthus. I can almost have to say it with some difficulty. But it is, a, it is a gourd that grew in Israel and was a very strong laxative. A very strong laxative. And taken too much of it, it would cause, it could cause death. So you can imagine, here they are eating of this stew. And one by one, they begin to feel its effects. And they cry out to Elisha, there's death in this pot. And so what does Elisha do? Verse 41, verse 41, he said, then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. You can imagine after eating it prior, and now Elisha throws flour into the pot. And then he says, pour it out. Would you be quick to eat that? I can imagine those guys were sitting back and wondering, should I or shouldn't I? But what would determine it? Elisha told them to eat after he had thrown flour into the pot. And they ate. And there was no harm in the pot. So what we have here is a wonderful miracle that God miraculously, through Elisha's through the prophet Elisha, removed death. He removed death from this pot. In the second miracle, we see that this man who is bringing his first fruits, uh, 20 loaves of barley, 
fresh ears of grain in the sack, Elisha commands his servant to give it to the men. Well, the servant sees the obvious problem. There's about a hundred men there. And these loaves would not be sufficient to feed this number of men. So what does Elisha do? He repeats the command. Only this time he says, thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. He gives them the word, the solemn word of God. What happens? God's power then multiplies those loaves so that they are more than adequate for the sons of the prophets who are gathered there, the over a hundred men, to eat. And they had some left. And notice at the very end, it says, according to the word of the Lord. And one of the things that we want to get from these miracles is that God is very, very much desires for his people to trust that which he promises them. This was true of the exilic community who would first be the first readers of this, of this passage. But throughout the scriptures, we see again and again the word of God given and the word of God fulfilled according to the word of God. This is meant to call each and every one of God's children to have faith in that word of the promise. As you read the Bible, as you meditate upon the promises of God, remember that every promise, every word of it is true, and every word of it comes to pass. May it be that God would enable us to trust him and to believe his word. It's not always easy. I think uh, sometimes the overwhelming weight of the experience we are going through in the moment makes us so focus on the impossibility of the experience and the difficulty that it presents to us, that we can, we find it, that it is with great difficulty that we lift our hearts and lift our minds to grasp a hold of God's promise concerning you, that he has promised to provide everything that you need. He has promised to be your God. He has promised to deliver you from evil and from death. And sometimes in the moment in which we are engaged in the battle, we take our eyes off of the promise. We take our eyes off of the word. Or like Peter on the lake, we take our eyes off of Jesus and we see the waves and we doubt and we fear. Every word of God is true. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The third thing I'd like for us to see is that these miracles are signs that point us to the one who is the true sustenance of his people. He is the bread of life. We think first of the pot of stew that was poisoned with these gourds and had death in it. 
It points us to the fact of the curse of sin and death and the liability to death, our mortality, the way that it hits our families. When we're young, uh, you may go through a period of time when you're young when, when you do not experience the death of anyone that you know really closely. As you get older, those incidences begin to increase, but they may be more distant from you. And as you get older, you experience the death of those that are nearest and dearest to you. I think of my own mom, who is 90, turns 95 in uh, September. I think of those who are older. I think of Mary Lou and others that we know in our congregation. One of the sad things is that the people that they have known, there are very few of them that are still alive. Death catches up to us all. We are subject to it. Not a, not a, not a living person will escape it. You may be in, the, in, in your younger years and full of uh, energy and, and vitality. You find it hard to imagine the impact of such a thing. But death comes to all. And this pot represents the curse of sin and death. God has the power, however, to remove sin and death. And God has removed it. And that's what I think this miracle of throwing flour into the pot represents. The flour that Elisha cast into the pot was a physical sign. And what kind of a sign was it? It wasn't much. How many of us use flour, right? What is it? It's dust. He casts it into the... It's nothing. It's dust. But it contains something that God uses. God, by his power, heals that stew. Well, what is the means that God removes death? What is that means? Well, we read some words in uh, the prophet Isaiah. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. We didn't esteem him. We esteemed him not. But surely... He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone his own way. 
but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How is death removed? One who has no comeliness, one who is acquainted with grief and sorrow, one whom mankind despised. This one bore our sins on the cross. This one who is despised by mankind is the one who removes death by his own death because he he himself was without sin. He did not die for his sins, but he died for the sins for whom that whom the Father had given to him before the foundation of the world. And he bore the curse that was due to them. And it was a substitutionary atonement. It was a substitutionary death. And Christ redeemed us from the curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And so it is that God takes and removes death by sending the eternal Son of God, who is, as it were, cast into the bloodstream of humanity, and by his holiness, and by his taking upon himself your sins and mine, he took death away from you. Oh, we're still subject to it, but not its sting, not its power. We will still, if Christ doesn't come before, we will, each of us, be laid in the grave. But the sting of death is the law. The curse of of death is sin. Christ has dealt with your sin. He has dealt with your guilt. Therefore, death is for you a mere passing into his presence and the knowledge of life. Christ is the one who removes death. Alexander Stewart, in his sermon on this passage, said, Before death could be removed from our guilty world, the Son of God had to come into it in the likeness of sinful flesh to procure for men the gift of life through his own death. And he said, he went on to say, Salvation could not be attained through the operation of principles that are inherent in human life and thus all of the attempts of secular man, all of the attempts of man apart from God to find life are futile. Salvation cannot be attained through the operation of principles inherent in human life. It must come from the outside. It must come from God himself. God gives the gift of his son so that guilty sinners who are hungry for grace and receive the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we see as well, not only does the the flower and the pot symbolize the work of Christ in removing sin and death, we see as well that the loaves, and we're reminded by this passage, and I'm sure your minds all went to it as we read it, of the fact that Jesus, Elisha, does a miracle here that Jesus does in John chapter 6. And we're told that there were, uh, that he tells his disciples there's a crowd here that have gathered that was coming toward him. And in John chapter 6, um, 5 and following, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, 
where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments of five barley loaves from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus does what Elisha did, only he does it to a greater extent, and he does it by his own power. Elisha fed 100, Jesus feeds 5,000. Elisha was a type of John, uh, if Elijah was a type of John the Baptist, Elisha points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is Jesus who tells us what the true meaning of bread is. In John chapter 6, verses 32 and following, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life for the world. They said to her, to, to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He said, Farther on, I am the bread of life. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the world, for the life of the world, is my flesh. There you have Jesus' definition of bread. His flesh broken. On the cross, Jesus, you'll remember in the Last Supper, took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. What is it? What is it to believe? It is to eat the Lord Jesus Christ, that is to believe that his death is all I need to live. If the first miracle of the removal of the curse of death points to the removal of the curse of death, the second points us to the provision of life, life in Christ. The curse of death is removed so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, Galatians says. The reason for the removal of the curse is that we might have life 
in union with Christ, that as we heard this morning, that we might live in union with Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ might even in us live by means of his spirit. Quote Calvin again, God has made the human nature of Jesus, which was sanctified by the spirit, the residing place of all of the graces of the spirit, which are required to transform men into new creatures, repeating, recreating them after the image of God revealed in Jesus. Everything that Jesus Christ possesses of spiritual wealth and power, whether as a gift from his Father or a result of his own self-sanctification, he possesses it not for his own sake, for he has need of nothing, but he possesses it that he might give it to enrich the poor and the needy. And so tonight, are you hungry? Are you poor and needy? Come to Christ and eat the living bread. These two miracles point to us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and they call us to eat. To eat is to make an active to do something active. It is to trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and his sacrifice on the cross alone for you. But not only his sacrifice in the removal of your guilt, but his life in heaven that he will pour out into you who are actively living in faith and trust in him. When you do that, his life is imparted to you by means of the Spirit. And so one of the prayers that we pray is, O Lord, O Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Fill me with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Give me his life that I may live in him and face the challenges and the trials and the temptations and the scarcity of this mortal life, knowing that I have a heavenly life streaming through me that comes to me from Jesus Christ in his resurrected and glorified life. May God help us to do that. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, As we are reminded of your great power, we are reminded as well that we are those who have wandered far. Gather us. Gather us to yourself and grant to us that faith which holds to your word and to your promise that we might know that you are the one who has overcome every obstacle. You have overcome every evil thing You have overcome Satan. You have overcome death. And we have our life in you. Grant that this may be the case for each of us, even this very night, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As a a hymn of response, we're going to sing, O Jesus, Joy of Loving Hearts, which is, Uh, Hymn number 494 in the Trinity Psalter. I was caught with a dilemma when I was trying to pick 
have us sing this hymn because the tune in the Trinity Psalter is different from the tune in the Trinity uh, hymnal. We're going to sing the hymn that is in the Trinity hymnal, Jesus, Thou Joy of Every Heart, So, uh, of, of, of Loving Hearts. So if, if you're following along in the Trinity Psalter, you might notice that there's a refrain at the end. That refrain is not 